Hey everyone, welcome back to Archives and Futures, a podcast for future generations. I am your host, Ivan Lozano. A couple of housekeeping things. Season one is almost done. We've got one episode after this one left. And then after that, I'm going to take a pause while I'm doing some fundraising for season two. If you have any ideas on funding sources, or if you want to help out with the funding, get in touch with me. I would love your help. Let's keep this podcast going. As always, follow us on Instagram, SoundCloud, Facebook, and Patreon at Archives and Futures, one word. Subscribe, share, give us a five-star rating. Archives plus Futures on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So let's start our interview and enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Jose Luis Benavides. I'm uh, from Chicago, actually. A couple blocks away. Three or four years of high school in this neighborhood. Oh my gosh. In Avondale, right on... Grace and St. Louis uh-huh. around the quarter, uh, but I grew up in Logan Square. And what else? What do I do? I'm a video artist, maybe documentarian, and a programmer of video art and film for Latinx folks. Nice. And um, let's start talking about that because one of the latest things that I've been sort of really interested in your practice is a series that you're working on, Sin Cinta Previa. Which, by the way, you guys just got um, a Propeller Fund grant, so congratulations on that. And I know that you've also gotten one before, so yeah, thank here you. we are on the Double Propeller Fund Club. Uh, and you're doing this with uh, John. Hen- John Henry Gavara mm-hmm. um, in Chukimarca. Mm-hmm. So why don't you, let's start with that project. Why don't you tell us about like how that started, how you guys met, and what you guys have been doing with that. Well, we haven't really done anything yet. Yeah, mostly it's we been just, you so far, right? Well, we just got the, the grant yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he has his his gallery, his space, or uh-huh. his project space, I should say, and library already established. There are three or, shows, three or four shows deep already. And I've been running my series separately um, for the past maybe a little over a year, pushing two years, where I've screened like at Comfort Station, Film front just had a thing up at 2018 or is that it? No, 6018 North. 6018 North. Um, And we just sort of decided to join forces because he had this admiration for what I was already doing. And I kind of was along for the ride for the creation or the the last phase of his Mm -hmm. creation for for Chuki Marca and just witnessing what he already had established and wanted to, to kick off. And I just sort of encouraged and said, go, 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 do it, do it, do it. He did it, and it's it's rolling, and it's 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 fantastic. Um, so, I think he saw that I was doing video, and that's a well, maybe not a strong suit for him. That yeah. he doesn't know that world, and I, he saw that I felt stronger, compelled to work in that that field of programming and sharing other people's work. Um, so, it just kind of makes sense to have a maybe a home or a, a way to have a home and not be roving around the city. To, to different spaces, although I like showing anywhere that I can. And that's like a nightmare when you're showing like moving image work, having to constantly like set up the places. Well, well, like Filmfront's really fantastic. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're they're friendly. Shout out to Filmfront. They t- kind of took everything on the back end and let me just worry about the text and mm-hmm. showing up. But but when I was at Comfort Station, I had to do everything myself and just yeah. the projector, sound, uh, you know, welcome people. Uh, run the events, close down shop, and all. But that's the way Conversation also right. works. They're self-driven DIY kind of space, so they're awesome for that, for letting me do whatever I want to do. Um, and I don't know, so it's somewhere in between running it and doing everything yourself and feeling exhausted and and having that that backing and that support. Uh, we're having a space. I think actually working with Chuki Marca, where we're going to be collaborating and thinking about 
the programs and things that he already wants, that John wants to do already. Um, whatever vision he has for incorporating performance into the space more now um, and where I could perhaps move from screenings in the space to maybe doing exhibitions of video art. Nice. Which is a rarity, I feel. We yeah, absolutely. Video artists don't get an opportunity to uh, showcase their work in the gallery as much, I feel. We're always kind of relegated um, to the back burner for the yeah. art world. <laughs> yeah, like some screen in the back room or something. How did you start with uh, Sin Cinta Previa? What was the sort of the uh, the impetus for starting that project and that series? Because um, you've had, like you said, you've been working on it for like about a year, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, a little over a year. A little over a year. Since last summer. So I guess past, yeah, it's already going to be next summer, two years. Um, how did I start or why did I start? I started because I didn't see, because of that void that I'm kind of, yeah. kind of mentioning, the sense that where the hell do we as video artists uh send our work if it's not just festivals of which there are only so many and they are hard to get into Mm -hmm. um especially if you're an experimental maker you have to fit sort of those parameters yep and if you're doing anything outside of that that's a little bit too traditional or could be even you don't know where to go and that's what i was finding with my own work i don't know where to send this work there isn't a place for it right um and if I, i was feeling that then i felt that i had an obligation to showcase the the people that I was starting to see that were doing and having probably the same problems as me, which has been true. Um, But then also because of my master's, while I was doing my MFA at UIC, uh, we have to write a thesis paper and I was gathering and and collecting a lot of video work by Chicana, Latina, Puerto Rican, uh, Colombian, different artists uh, from all over, Argentinian, most probably those three major um, makers and these women and Chicana and queer makers were not uh, in, in any way that I had seen been represented in a lot of texts or meet or, you know, in academia, yeah. I couldn't find much written about them. So I thought, well, then if I can't find the texts and no one knows about the work, then right. I what probably do you do? Yeah. should show it to people and maybe someone will start writing about it. Um, so with that archive that I had collected of my own sort of digitization of a lot of like tapes and things and just wanting to have uh, a base for myself to describe and fo- give a foundation for my practice, uh, that's what I had to write about, um, it just, I realized at some point, well, what happens if I show the work and what happens if I'm the one framing it and what happens if I can have this sort of position as a curator programmer, which I really take inspiration from, from Zach Hutchinson, who's a, who's a, uh, is another queer maker who was at UIC at the exact same time doing and running the video, uh, video zine, mm-hmm. which is a video art focused screening series right. that Zach ran. And she's fantastic maker of objects and video and combines in the performance and all these magical and, and, and fantastic ways. Um, so I, you know, actually had even been featured, not featured, but in one of the screenings and I'd had some work in one of the screenings and it even helped, uh, I think in the early phases was on one of the, the committees judging, mm, selecting mm-hmm. some of the work. So I'd seen, oh, what's possible with programming and learned kind of through Zach's example that, oh, it can work. And it's a really nice and fun thing to do yeah. to show other people's other makers work that probably don't have anywhere else to show. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's, that was mostly it, why and how it all started the ar- between my archival digging, writing my thesis and, and then realizing, well, it's not just a queer and it's not just a video art thing because my practice also goes between documentary and, and all these, these other avenues that 
the queerness and the Latinx thing and the experimental and documentary kind of all mixed together in whatever I can and want to program for Cincinta Previa. Nice. Um, so maybe let's dig into that. Let's dig into your practice also and how you came to like moving images and how you sort of went on that path. Because I was uh, I was looking you up and I saw that like your undergrad, you were studying um, Latino studies, right? Mm -hmm. So how did you go from a purely sort of like I guess theoretical um, background or practice to like being a maker and feeling sort of more in control of that side too. Mm -hmm. I, well, I was always a writer, mm -hmm. so I had been so writing. started from writing. Yeah, I'd always been a poet or fic or interested in fiction. Wanted to go down that route as a kid. Um, I was a part of an organization locally uh, called Young Chicago Authors. I was, you know, a volunteer for their poetry slam louder than a bomb for like every year that I could. I was on the nice. publication of their, uh, their teen led publication, Say What Magazine. I was just helping run the open mic. I was always in the periphery in that community in some way, had internships two summers and, you know, all these kinds of things. Right. But writing was never seen as a viable form of income mm. in a working class family. <laughs> and art did. <laughs> so I just l ran away from it as much yeah. as I could and thought I could be, I would become a teacher. I'd become a, you know, elementary school art educator or something. And I'd facilitate my need for creativity that way. Right. Uh, that failed. So I went to anthropology that failed. I tried to be a Spanish minor that failed. So I just, <laughs> with all of that, excess knowledge from every discipline i ended up in the latino studies department where i was already taking too many classes anyways and realizing they need people to petition for the the major it wasn't mm. a major at the time so if you went through interdisciplinary studies this was at uiuc champaign urbana that you uh would help the department out so that they get more the more applicants they got the better more funding yeah they would get to have an actual major which they did eventually and so it was a win-win. It was like, I'm helping my buddies out in this program that I, like, literally these grad students and this faculty that I'm falling in love with. And, you know, I get to walk out with my degree finally without having, actually having to go through the rigmarole of, like, an anthropology degree or something. Right. So that led to eventually me wanting to apply all of that media studies. We talked about media kind of mm -hmm. before we started the conversation. Um I was interested in the ways that Latinos, Latinx people have been represented in the media, our lack of representation, and or the false ways we've been represented, and always was interested in film, always interested in movies, um, because of that media studies uh, sort of critique and angle, feminist and queer and Chicana, Chicano or Latinx critique that, that the Latino studies department could bring, but writing wasn't doing it anymore after years of being a music and arts journalist i, I helped create a and found found and, and was editing um a, a local um zine or pop magazine gozamos.com which is uh was fun for a couple of years but also wearing and taxing on my life i hadn't didn't have any money right again as a writer it's probably the lowest paid of all art forms right unless you're writing for hollywood or something um uh, it just it just felt that I needed to make and make something and use my writing a, as a way to maybe frame and and contextualize my vision my my interest in critiquing the world and culture versus just uh, writing about the world and culture or telling stories that were probably never going to get read or never going to get a bestseller you know for 
and also i don't think i have the discipline for to be a novelist <laughs> yeah frankly it's a lot of work to be it a is, yeah. poet or a novelist and you have to really suffer <laughs> i didn't want to suffer that much so what were the first experiences like or what was the sort of the guiding light when you were thinking about moving from words to to media mm. to like making it what did you have like a specific example in mind or like mm. something that you were um modeling it after if i'm going to be really honest it wasn't even the any visual artist per se although she, i think she is a visual artist and she, and she should de deserve to be categorized as one but it's mostly more music mm -hmm. because i'd been i'd been listening to so much music and writing about music um that led me into the technology of just very basic sound editing with yeah. like garage band and feeling oh if i can do garage band then maybe i can open up iMovie and if yes. i can do iMovie then i can maybe open up final cut and that little pathway but the example or that I might have held at that moment and probably still do because she's my idol is uh, the artist MIA who has a visual arts degree. Right. Yeah. And is a producer and maker and film, you know, per, uh, a director as well as a musician and a producer of her own music and vocalist and, you know, experimenter in all of these kind of realms. So I thought I'm not going to be, uh, you know, the next pop star, but maybe I can tinker with and get my political message across in the way that she'd always kind of used whatever vehicle nice. she could to yeah. get a political message out to say F you to these certain establishments and these precepts and these ideas about the world and in her case, refugees and immigrants and these other things, which also align with my politics, but yeah, it would be her and it'd be that path from sound to, to video. Yeah. And that's a really interesting path too, because, um, in my practice, I'm really kind of, um, I also love music and a lot of my practice also started from basically thinking about like DJing and how DJing is a form of mixing different media together in some ways and different um, elements as a sort of, it's not exactly appropriation. We were talking about this earlier too, about the idea of appropriation and different kind of levels to it. Um, but yeah, I'm always really interested in makers that come from like a music background because there's already that really intense um, attention to time. And to the experience over time that maybe isn't something that's very, that is um, prevalent in people that come from a traditional or a visual arts background as well. And that's something I like about the work of yours that I've seen, that's saw some of that online and everything, is that feeling that you know where you're taking us in time. There is that idea of like tempo and of, of, of motion. So did you find that that was kind of like an easy move from like GarageBand to iMovie or uh, how was that? What was, what was that feeling like? Well, two things. I don't, I don't, I'm not really aware of the process or thinking about time um, in the transition from sound to, to music. I can't think of any, any examples other than the timeline that you yeah, have yeah. to work through. Yeah, I think, I think that's a big deal. I mean, just sort of like visually being able to see it and yeah. compose film. Yeah. Visualizing time. Yeah. It's, it's nice. Um, it is something that I do when I do. I'm, I'm honored that you're, or flattered that you even noticed or thought of it uh, in my work. But I do think of um, when I make a video piece of it i do think of it i consider the sound immensely yeah all of the, any piece that i've made it has a lot of music or sound in it and it's a part as much equal to the image if not in some cases more prevalent or more dominant than the image um but also that time probably in the way that i think of the time or the construction of a of the timeline of a video, I, I think also relates to where I come from in terms of po poetry and fiction. When I think of the construction of, of a story or a narrative that I have these, um, you know, 
we've all been taught the the narrative arc or the ways that a right. story has to have a flow and beginning end or some kind of structure bracketing book ending or your whatever you're doing with time in a story if it's you're going backwards or you're going forwards or you're splicing time um lends itself to film and f like traditional film right. narrative stories but also to any other thing like music or experimental video or whatever uh yeah i like to play with that jumping back and forth and i like to play with with uh not just not just things like musicality or tone um but where like you said where i could take someone on a little journey yeah it's also interesting seeing your work because i see at least in what's online i see sort of like two different experiences in 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 your videos as like the one track that's more kind of focused on the music and a lot more kind of like about the experience, and then there's the other side, which is much more clo or closer. It seems almost to like a, like a, uh, like a video essay, mm -hmm. where you're sort of, uh, and those are the sort of the more documentarian ones. Like I'm thinking of the one about the Shiners, for example, mm -hmm. um, and how that's sort of structured as like a video essay versus maybe one of the, um, and I forget the names, but the ones that are like very red colored, mm -hmm. that are more about like yeah, this is like accumulation of like experiences or, or, or ideas. How do you go about? deciding what shape a project is going to take or like composing it what's your process like that depends on the content like you mentioned those two pieces if i could even describe the process of uh of making for either of those you're talking about Teruta Hadara, which is mm -hmm. about the shriners um and representations of 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 arabs or middle easterners through their particular gaze and then also red scare which is the the work that um well, it deals with Mexico mostly and Mexico City and violence in Mexico. Uh, those two pieces born from completely different contexts. Yeah. Right. And I would say they both evolve on a massing of, of my own archive or footage around a subject and, mm. and, and, and always kind of collecting uh, until I finally have and reach a threshold. In the one case, it wasn't me collecting the material. It yeah. was Kai Sasali who like collaborate with that piece on and who for whom the piece was uh, made for an exhibition that he has had. It's touring. I don't know what's going on with it. Um, but so that was an, a literally an archive dig done by someone else that I could take all of that content and just play mm, with yeah. and then get my sort of take on that content and the the the, the vision across. Whereas the other, the Red Scare piece, I'm uh, thinking about it maybe for a longer time. I wanted to make that piece in the beginning of grad school and then like three years, four years later with the, more of a topical, timely nature of the the, the 50th anniversary of the Masapre de Tatalolco mm -hmm. that, oh, I, that thing that I was sort of gestating on needs to be born right now. Because yeah. it's literally the thing that I've been thinking about and holding back from saying or wanting to make anything about for four years so okay this is the this is the moment um and the way that the video comes out or the ways that i engage with sound or the ways that i make the you know edit some things is purely dependent on the footage that i have that's in front of me it's what can i do with this and what how can i experiment with this thing that has i think that those that foot that that type of footage or those two examples of footage um they have as much like materiality or textural kind of difference as as moving between like wood and clay yeah. as mediums. Like I can't do the same thing and make the same kind of video with this footage that I could with this other kind of footage. I just can't. 
So does the footage come first in all of your projects or are you, because one thing that you keep kind of coming or mentioning and that I notice also is your interest in archives mm -hmm. and sort of the work coming from the archive and being a, a sort of a, maybe interpolation of the, of an archive or a different way of presenting the information. How do you reach or get to these archives and, and what is that process for you when, when making work? I think I'm making my own archive, which is the way that nice. I approach archives. I don't, um, I don't, I don't imagine that we're, we as queer Latinx people are represented as well in archives as we would be in any other institution right. or, or body of knowledge. Um, so, and having, I think you told me a little bit of a story of this as well, of you looking for yourself in an archive and not finding or yeah. finding very little and that not being enough. So you have to do something else. Same thing for me. I'm looking and searching and not finding what I want or not seeing reflection of myself in the archive at least in the beginning when I started to develop to develop this as an archival practice um in grad school making and collecting this work that took two three years to gather um yeah just taught me oh also what I was doing in grad school was telling uh, my mother's story and telling my family's story and not finding uh an archive or a, a place that would represent that anyways either so it just became this out of necessity, this, this, and, yeah. a, and, a, and a comfortable place for me too, as a researcher, as just a person who just, I could just spend all day in a library or th in a database, like looking at things and, and just scanning, scanning and scanning until I uh -huh. see the word that I'm looking for. I'm weirdly, um, okay. yeah, I can relate to that. Yeah. I can spend hours and hours and hours and hours sorting things. A little bit like, like OCD. Completely OCD, completely OCD. But you know, this is like a good way to express it. I feel. Yeah. I want to find every single freaking thing I can't I want I need that and if I don't find it I'm gonna like lose my mind and I have to go thoroughly through every single page until I get to page 1007 of that database uh -huh. like, all right cool I did it. <laughs> what archives are you looking at do you prefer physical archives or do you prefer like online archives or online databases well at that point when it all started in grad school it was just using the resource that I had yeah. available like that entered the library alone and those databases for um and having access at, to this institution UIC was was mostly it. Um, for me now, it might just be something as simple as YouTube and yeah, okay, I'm looking for this or I th I'm thinking about this. Well, what can I find on the internet and, mm -hmm. and just rip it. And that's interesting too, thinking about like family archives or creating archives to kind of process your experience with your family. Um, and maybe this is a good way to talk about Lulu and El Jardin, mm -hmm. a project that you've been working on for a couple of years now, right? Mm -hmm. um, and this is a project that you've been working on about your experiences in your family and with your mother, correct? Yes. Um, can you talk about this a little bit, how this came about or how yeah. you, where it is? Sure. So how did it come about? Uh, it's a story that I had been working on since I was younger, thinking about it primarily as a work of fiction mm -hmm. or wanting to fictionalize it and turn it into a novel or something of sorts. Um, probably much like now I was stuck between disciplines or between genres, like not sure if I wanted to do poetry more or if I wanted to do fiction traditionally more. Mm. And so I was still stuck in some flash fiction world and, uh, not getting very far with that either because right. it's, you see, I do one or the other and it's not going to get accepted into things and you're not going to make any sense to anybody if you are communicating in the wrong way. Right. Um, or they don't get what way you're communicating. And so I, you know, kind of left it in the, again, in the back burner. I um, was doing the music journalism stuff, focusing on 
as prose for a while, uh, even and slipping in so these sort of trances of poetry <laughs> as nice. I'm describing music and just thinking of music as this other kind of worldly trip that you can take uh, in your body and in your mind. And then I give up all that and f and then slowly wiggle into my way into the visual arts. And um, it just it was actually that moment when I started grad school that I was thinking of the the Red Scare video. And I was thinking of just making work about my mother. And I was a little scared by the response that I was getting um, from from faculty, not because what they were saying was bad, but because um, maybe I just wasn't ready. Yeah. I wasn't ready for for being like angry and and this is violent or this is scary. But no, no one was saying it in a bad way, saying it's like that's the ethos of the work. Right. And so I was, okay, I'm not... I'm not like that kind of a loud, scary person. I'm scary maybe in my own weird ways, but not loud, aggressive, scary. Does that feel like a microaggression? Sorry to sort of interrupt because that's something that like I, I get so fucking annoyed when like I get told like, oh, you're too much mm. or you're, you're scary or like it's like too much emotion. It's like, bitch, I'm Mexican. What did you expect? Like, yes, yes. And I wasn't getting that because okay. it wasn't that feeling. It was, it was maybe just weighing also at that moment my... Um, my investment in the projects mm. and my mo my own emotional investment yeah. in the project. Do I want to expend, expel this anger right. at this moment? Do I have the capacity to do that in this vulnerable state of grad school? Yeah, and it is a really fucking vulnerable state of yeah, grad school. So I didn't, the way I thought of it was I'm going to, I'm going to go to this. I felt that that other, the like Red Scare video is a little bit more of a vulnerable, a little bit more of me. Mm. And I didn't want that to be, um, Critiqued, yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't ready for that to be critiqued. I just wanted to make it right, and so I didn't. And maybe that's just one piece, you know. It's just a one-off. It's not something that I needed to spend two years developing, right. uh, realizing then that the that Lulu and the Jardim is was a big, much bigger project mm -hmm. and could take me in much, you know, or larger to a different, you know, places and outcomes. I, I had just decided to invest emotionally more in that one. Which required a lot of emotional investment. Right, yeah. It's my family. It's my mom. It's me learning video. Me learning archival practice. Me learning the language and the practice of making in these modes. And then on top of it, it's this intimate, it's really intimate and intense story. To answer sort of maybe the question, what is it? It's about my mother, her institutionalization in the seventies in a mental institution in Chicago recently after having just been like the family having just immigrated to chicago so it's like immigration being latino in the institution it's about queerness because she's institutionalized for coming kind of coming out in her family as a lesbian and what's the big mess of, of yeah. the 70s and the moment for homophobia and sexism yeah at large yeah and had they just emigrated from mexico city mm -hmm, from mexico city yeah it's such a um that's a crazy, a crazy story. Just that, like thinking that, like in someone's lifetime, things have like come so far to where like we are not scared of like being put in those situations anymore. They're so dehumanizing. Um, you mentioned before we go into that because uh, obviously, you know, I want to sort of like leave it up to you to kind of go into those territories. But like, what was the process like of learning all those skills? Like, for example, the um, um, the skills that you mentioned when, when we're, when going into this project of like working with institutions, working with archives, working with, uh, these histories and putting all these things together, which I guess is a big, bigger question of like, what was grad school like for you in this process of learning? Hmm. That's, 
probably even bigger than I can inter- like wrap my <laughs> brain around right now. Yeah. What was it like? I Did I, you enjoy grad school? It was painful. Yeah, was there productive pain? Yeah, it was very productive. I mean, I had a solo show. Yeah. A year after that and I the documentary got to screen in Mexico City and Spain and a bunch of different places. Chicago, so it it's nice to have work travel and, and be seen. Yeah. And and to think that work from a very vulnerable or maybe not not novice, but um, you know, in a from a phase of learning. Yeah. could affect anyone or be good enough to go anywhere or to be seen by anyone is is a blessing um so it has to have been productive uh, but the, what, what, what was it like i mean to be honest i'm a nerd i like the classroom I yeah didn't, i didn't like the studio visits i hated people being <laughs> in my creative process yeah i want to i want people to be in my creative process when we're collaborating perhaps not when they're just a passerby and like what's that and move that thing right over. yeah I don't, what that was not helpful or telling me things that i didn't already think before and as if they're the first one to think it and i've been staring at this thing for 15 you know hours right or you know but also amazing i mean a lot of guidance in terms of where to go in the 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 histories that i don't know or have access to not not even my own or our own cultures uh and representations in the archives in that way but uh okay well, who's the feminist or who's the black maker that has done some video work that's in the lesbian realm that you should look at okay thank you I want yeah. to find their work and know about it too and see that video and see how that will affect me in a way that's, uh, you know, productive. And it, well, that was amazing. Having, you know, makers that are invested in feminist uh, filmmaking uh, practices or are just doing really badass work coming into the studio at times too was, was, a, was nice. a treat. It wasn't all pain, you know? Yeah. Finding, finding and realizing that those three women like Sylvia Malagrino, Jennifer Reeder and Deborah Stratman are their opinions are the most important and the only ones that matter in the, in a, in a department that might be more interested in sculpture, painting or whatever other things. And it's okay. I don't have to have every single person's right. opinion matter to me. Those three women are good enough yeah, <laughs> and better than good enough. Yeah. Those are three incredible makers right there. Was the, were those the people that you mostly work with at uh, UIC? Yeah, I didn't get so much time with Jennifer Reeder, but but she was, you know, in and out. And Deborah, yes, Deborah was like on my committee, and so was Sylvia. Sylvia was my main advisor, so those were. Yeah, Deborah's films are amazing, and like talk about like yeah, talk about like you know like I don't know if like anthropology is the right word, but like the way that she presents these like stories is just incredible, and the the depth of research and the lightness of touch in her work is. A plus plus, like she's yeah, yeah. My what head a person! Is, my head is nodding so hard it's gonna fall. Yeah. Off. <laughs> right now for the people that can't see me. Now, um, what other people did they recommend? I'm interested also in just kind of getting an idea of like your personal canon or like the canon of like makers or thinkers that have really sort of influenced your practice and how you think about moving images or, or, or art in general. Um, we talked about MIA. Now we've talked about Jennifer Reed or Deborah Stratman as well. Yeah. Are there other people that have really sort of um, impacted you or you felt have given you like? Um, validation or an example moving forward for sure maybe not um I, I, i'm terrible with names of artists but i can generally sometimes remember the names of the works that they had recommended so i was being um you know pushed by jennifer to see a work by i forget the artist's name but i think the film's called shuli or shula uh and and things that were in again in this very feminist yeah. video women made women made uh you know video art or films um experimental films and you know things like 
things that I wouldn't even expect. Like, well, I would never think that I would be watching a, a Holocaust documentary that's 10 hours long, like Shoah. Yeah. I, I don't, I, that's not something that I'm, I would, on my own, subject, subject myself to, um, out of maybe respect for the topic and also for my own, uh, uh, sanity. My own Sometimes, sanity yeah. interests. Like, I'm in grad school, I don't have time for a 10 hour documentary, but. I had to see something like that and know that it exists. And if yeah. I hadn't known that it exists, I might not even have been as committed on the motif of like plants and nature that mm. that, prevalent, that is prevalent in the work. Of the, um, and that was actually um, Deanna Frid that recommended that film. So it's a painter or a sculpture. Or, or I'm not exactly sure. Fibers? I, Deanna Frid is amazing and does lots of different things. I don't what are, where is her practice lie? Yeah, it is like sort of in the middle of like painting and fibers for sure. Yeah. So, so you're right. So you have these recommendations, but personally, my other main, um, sort of, I don't know, cheerleader in the art world is a professor who's not at UIC and is in California, uh, R Richard Rodriguez, who is an academic and writes books. He writes academia. He's, um, Richard, is it T Richard T Rodriguez? He um, was a mentor and a, and a professor of mine in undergrad. We'd always kept a friendship, and he, um, you know, helps write those letters to get into grad school nice. eventually. And then ha had to have him on my committee because he writes about queer Chicano family and, and you know intersections of media, and was teaching these classes on right. film studies. And is a, he's a literary person himself as well, coming mostly housed in like English departments. So kind of a uh i mean he's a student of like angela davis you know okay this is this is the kind of person that i would need to encourage me and tell me keep going yeah to keep going exactly. yeah so maybe can you share a little bit of like the things in the project luna jardin that that uh that really kind of stuck with you in terms of making how did you grow from that project what, what did you you mentioned thinking about maybe like a whole segment about plants and how um you're thinking about making Evolved and working in this documentary. Do you consider it a documentary? Because it's a sort of ongoing project. Where do you see sort of the edges of it? I see it mostly as, as okay, I would approach documentary as a video art maker. So it is documentary if you want it to just be documentary. It could also right. just be an essay film or experimental film if you want to see it as that as well. Like I said, this makes it hard to be placed in categories, right. perhaps, or or I don't know if it's good enough to just be in one and excel in in either of the two genres uh, or t or festival types. Um, but how did I grow, or how did I, what did I gain from from these processes? I think I had learned because the the work has also has these components of like a chapbook, uh, making of a, a vinyl record, a sort of facsimile of a of a soundtrack to this documentary that doesn't exist. It's not a real soundtrack. I didn't print vinyl and mm -hmm. or release an album for for a documentary that I have no money for. Um, and then making some sculptural work, photography, and uh, and other things uh, to accompany. In that process, I sort of learned that I hate objects and material objects and a material <laughs> practice in that uh -huh. way. So I gained the knowledge that I just like the digital. That's good knowledge worlds. to have. Yeah, that saves you a lot of space and time. I'm fine. Yeah. I'm relegated. I'm Absolutely. in a box. Uh, categorize me as a video person I'm, and I'm done. I'm happy. And then I also gained this massive, well not massive, but a 
thick enough archive that I was able to exhibit, you know, seven screenings. Yeah. On the first, I'm literally in the first bat. Okay, here's Comfort Station. Open the doors. I've got seven screenings lined up for this month. Uh, that's a lot of content. That's a lot of content. So that's a lot of work. I can show that and I have that as a, as a research base, as an inspiration and a motivation for my practice. And I don't know, strong beginning, I think, for a visual art career. Um, I don't know. Did you, did you, were you able to, in the making of this process, a lot of those, um, sort of difficult stories and emotions, um, that you were working with, I guess? Was I what? Were you able to process a lot oh. of the difficult content and sort of in terms of like family histories and, um, stories of migration and stories of, uh, of incarceration in a way too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I was able to, well, in the growing pains of grad school, also grow as a person in some ways and understand my mother's story in a better and deeper way. Um, I think it's, our relationship is still always difficult, as any mother and son yeah. could be. But the process of making just, I learned, I learned oh, this is the truth behind what are the, fam the, the problems in our family or the problems of the way that we relate to our family. Uh, I learned that and processed through her pain and got to witness it and also learned uh, another thing about my practice that I don't want to and don't need to exhibit and showcase someone yeah. else's pain and suffering in those ways that are exploitative. So I kind of learned how to toe the line between poetry and what's like what moment and what, what part of and negotiated the editing to mm. reveal only as much as I thought was respectful yeah. of the story, but also of her, you know, humanity and not, not let it become this, uh, there's the, the idea of like poverty porn, but also of just like right. suffering this, trauma, this porn. trauma porn. Exactly. Right. That we're just addicted to watching people sobbing and suffering and crying and bleeding and dying in front of us. And, and there's a sadness and there's, there's, there's pain in the story. Of course. Yeah. It's, I can aestheticize that versus uh, just gawking, having people just look at it and be, wow, oh, oh my God. I'm not interested in, in those things from a media perspective or from a consumption, a place of consumption. Um, and and the, the, the pain and the processing that I had to do is sort of maybe in some ways just realizing I need to distance myself from my family at least <laughs> for a while. I don't know how long it's going to take to... to get back to a place where I feel comfortable with, okay, Ooh, yeah. So that happened. Yeah. So that was like 30 years of someone's life. Like, mm, I mean, the institutionalization wasn't 30 years. That was just her high school experience, but it's the, the effects of that are still right. felt now. Of course. Yeah. Um, and I'm living, you know, that, and then that I'm this vessel of like someone else's uh, trauma. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Okay. So now what do I do with all that? And we're still, I'm still working on it. <laughs> Yeah, we're still working on it as a family, um, and I think it's fine to admit that and try to make from a place of honesty and vulnerability and say, okay, shoot, things aren't perfect. Uh, if I'm interested in violences and traumas and representation in the world, it's probably because I'm working through those same right. issues in myself. So, right, and I mean that's such a queer storyline too, and also like there's something really amazing about the fact that you were able to. To use that story and in the, in the way, you know, you've traveled a bunch of places and had all these amazing experiences and like um, been able to show your work in so many places because of it. You know, you're sort of like been able to polish the thing that you were like, that you were born into in this reality into like 
a really great situation. Well, not great situation for yourself, but you know, you know what I mean. Into like some very positive things in life too. Yeah, to turn it, turn it yeah. upside down, right? Exactly. Just yeah, yeah. Try. I'm not a very optimistic or cheerful person. If anyone <laughs> knows me, is probably you know very observed, uh, but. Yeah, I think it's doing doing what you can. I think, and it's also fulfilling a promise, a desire that yeah. I had to do something with this story, and sensing and feeling that it was something that needed to be seen or heard. Yeah. And okay, if you make that promise to yourself, or you have that intention when you're 15, and finally when you're 33, you get to do it. It's like, all right, now I can I can move on from yeah. that. It's even just being frozen in that that like desire to make that thing. I can make other things now. Yeah, there's like a restorative aspect to it. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it like taking that work to Mexico City and sort of like going back in this sort of like reverse... Um, immigration. Immigration, but also in the positive way where you're like being um, lauded for, for the work that you're making and you're sort of sharing this experience in the place that is very also very different from what it was mm-hmm. um, right. what it was when the different. family left. Yeah. yeah, certainly very different from when they left. I don't know what it was like when they left. I wasn't alive. <laughs> But I can imagine. Um, and I mean, more the story or the, the telling the story there and being in a place that's connected to the story only um, made me feel that the story was 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 being heard in, by the right audience or yeah. the people that were like really receptive and wanting for that story that got it yeah. or that could see themselves in that story or wanted to understand this migration to Chicago too, in some ways. Um, and Terremoto, the publication. Who yeah. Gave, shout out to Terremoto. They're amazing. Who gave me this opportunity were the loveliest, most supportive people ever. So it's, it's those baby steps into the art world where you think the art world is this vicious monster and that you just are like vying for and competing and everyone's cutthroat and you're going to die. And, and that's the point. Well, this is the exact opposite. And yeah. Also like, wow, this is a warm, healthy. I mean, they're stressed because they're running a publication. Right. right? Yeah. <laughs> but they're uh, nurturing. Right. Of each other as, as much as I think they can be, and, and and of the arts and of a random human being that they've invited into a space to show and inaugurate their program of of La Postal, which is an archive focused um, uh, project space or exhibition space mm-hmm. opportunity for people working, you know, in in these realms. Um, so it's just a rare blessing. It's sort of also fortuitous. It was just timing. Yeah. They were just coming out with the, that exhibition. I just finished all this work and had it all kind of sitting in and coalesced and waiting to go somewhere. Yeah. And, and if I think it's actually even might be even be by, by coincidence because of Mev Luna that I Shout don't out know to Mev. what kind of wizardry happened there, but I think she might have posted something or they might have posted something up on on Instagram about them. And then that's how I found out about the publication. And then like a week later, I saw the call for submissions and I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. Okay. That's when those stars aligned. It worked and out. Yeah. Yeah. Okie doke. They're really great. Uh, going to Mexico and... Had you been there before? I lived there actually okay. for, for a while. And I didn't grow up there or anything. I went back as an adult. And that's when I was doing some of the music journalism. Got it. For Gozamos. It was about a year and a half of my life. Um, I got to go back and again, another half a year. So maybe like two years total. Um, so I knew the landscape. Yeah. I got, I kind of get Mexico city in a very, very rudimentary way because I'd also been going since, since I was a kid and I spent a semester study abroad there on the periphery in El Estado. Mm. Um, just, you know, learning Spanish, I guess. Uh, 
So the, returning to the city was dodgy because I'm uh, telling this story, this family thing. I don't really want my family there to know because I don't want it to yeah, come back to my mom. And, yeah. it's, and it's a heat on her for like telling this stuff about our grandmother. And like, but I don't really talk about my grandparents or anything in the documentary. I don't really t- say anything negative per se about the family. It's just facts. Like this happened. Yeah. I went there. They, they're the ones that sent me. It's not really anything controversial about them. It's just, just shitty that they're the ones that did it and right you know, okay well those are the consequences of their actions that two generations later <laughs> i'm gonna out that the the fact that they did that but um as weird weird to just be in a place that i lived in once before but i'm also experiencing it from this other kind of vantage point literally now seeing the city as an artist not as a mm, journalist yeah writing about other yeah. people promoting other people's art me now being invited to the radio by cool friends at radio um sorry i think it's nopal radio nopal but friends that i ended up going back to work with um ali and clara who run a space called um laxcala tres and they are independent curators who Mm -hmm. had also just gotten some money in a little after and from a grant and now are creating their project space and just being in the again the right place right time a little bit of luck with um things that people were really responsive to and 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 felt welcomed by everybody was happy to meet me and want to talk to me and wanted to know more and deep 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 or dive deeper into (laughs) the the story or find out more about me or the music that i'm interested in yeah that's that's sort of a base for the 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 documentary as well um just kind of fun making a new family with with a city that i'd that can be very isolating, to be honest. Mexico City is is bigger <laughs> than Chicago. It's a, Yeah, it's one of the it's biggest one, in the world. It's yeah, like it's top three. It's like right after like Mumbai, right? It's like the second one after Mumbai, massive. maybe? It's just massive. Yeah. <laughs> and, millions and millions of people. And I don't want to live in big cities anymore <laughs> because of Mexico City. <laughs> oh. I don't really want to even live in Chicago anymore. I want to go to like some farm <laughs> or live in a college town in the middle of Maybe not the cornfields, but maybe in a forest somewhere would be yeah. nice. Um, but anyways, that's Mexico City is beautiful. It's dense. It's crazy. It's cool. It's fun. It's exciting. It's a lot. Yeah, it's such a sci-fi place. Like I can't help thinking of like Mexico City in like almost like a sci-fi context because it is so enormous and there's so many layers to everything in Mexico City. Like yeah. there's, it's impossible to grasp grasp the city because there's so much in it. Yeah. Um, and you just like had a hard time with it. I, was it? A, I mean, I'm interested in thinking about like how you experienced it as an artist versus as a journalist. That's a really interesting point there. As a journalist, I was just going to bars and just wherever yeah. music was happening, lots of festivals. Yeah, and learning that I hate festivals too. It's a lot of. There's a lot of people in festivals. It's tough. Yeah. yeah or it's just I feel like a, a lot of what you I mean my, or growth in general as a person is learning what you don't like. Yes. N- and learning to say no to things yeah, you don't like. Yeah. Not necessarily just I love this thing and following that path. It's like realizing and whittling away the stuff that you don't yeah. need and isn't helping you, or isn't productive or isn't um, nourishing. Um, so I don't know. It's just it's again it's just one of those things. You're in your twenties. You're milling about your finding yourself quote unquote which mm-hmm. is like finding anything it's just following this path that i, I set out for myself and yeah. decided i'm gonna be this weirdo 
and I want to suffer in this way and not have money and make, write and write about music and forge a pathway that I thought would lead to some kind of success. Um, and then changing course as one would normally do in their twenties. Right. Like, nope, I'm going to go to art school. Nice. (laughs) I want to make video art or something. (laughs) (laughs) Do you stay in touch with a lot of those contacts from like the journalism or music world in Mexico? No, not, at all. not really. I mean, Mexico City and the music scene in general, I learned that they, these independent industries are are really quite massive. They're yeah. not, they don't, they're not as small or indie as they might appear. Uh, the artists might look indie, but the, the machine behind them is probably uh, not as big as, you know, the biggest music producers or institutions but they're not that far away what kind of music were you writing about when you were in mexico and what years were those Mm, the years between like 2010 to 2013 15 um oh and what kind of music i mean everything it was just like i said mostly indie so anything from independent hip-hop to folk to nice uh i think let's just stop yeah between the realms of like indie rock punk indie folk music and, and hip-hop and maybe other things like traditional uh forms of latin american music that would come come my way some random son harocho player that was going through chicago or that caught my eye nice out there so it's and also an opportunity to learn really yeah to learn about these genres learn about uh go in that deep dive into that whole history of an artist that's connected to a whole other world of of music and, and art that i'm completely unaware of which is fun to explore. Yeah. What kind of music do you listen to now? Hmm. I'm, I'm actually mostly only now in listening to like new wave industrial and just weird goth shit that I can find from Russia or wherever the hell it's coming. from. (laughs) There's a lot of that in Russia. Like all that weird witch house thing, like kind of like moved over to Russia. So weird. I want to go there now really bad. I kind of already terrified of Russia. I always wanted to go to Russia. Didn't you see Anastasia as a kid? Isn't that your favorite movie? Isn't Rasputin your daddy? (laughs) No. Well, I mean, yes, Rasputin is a daddy, but I'm just, I'm so terrified of Russia. There just seems to be like, and I don't know. I mean, this is weird because like the homophobia is not fun. And then like, I think like places that are so like mob based, I think I just have a trauma having grown up in Mexico in the nineties of like, yeah, of like not knowing that and sort of being terrified of like both the police and then the people, the police are like looking at like to like, yeah, yeah, there's, there's like a weird, there's, those sorts of places scare the hell out of me. Are, okay, so I can can I flip it? I don't know where yeah, where, sure. where part of Mexico. I grew up in Guadalajara in the nineties. Okay. Yeah, so a lot of narcos. Yeah, I, I, Mexico City was really chill in those years. Well, sort so of. I mean, Mexico have, City. I didn't have to. Feel in the two thousand, was like yeah, it was like the it safe was all, place. It's all in the north, you know. It's all. It was in the north. north or like it was sort of leaving from Mexico from Guadalajara, and then it came back like in the twenty tens, mm-hmm. and now it's like around Jalisco because I mean like uh, Nova Generacion Jalisco is like the main um, or fighting to be sort of the dominant cartel right now but yeah it was rough yeah um, I don't know I don't know that life I mean I know Dodge and then for me Mexico City it was also like there's also like what I was saying about like the different levels like my experience with Mexico City I remember going there when I was like a teenager and then also then you would stop because they there was so many, so many um, kidnappings. Like yeah. the Sequestro Express was happening all the time. So like Mexico City before I left Mexico was still like an incredibly dangerous place. I left Mexico in '99. Right I after that, it got say better. And that I did, I, I did live. I was saying that I didn't live that or know that, but I actually do, and that's part of the one of the reasons that I made the 
the Red Scare video yeah. was that a cousin had experienced a Sequest Express, as you called it, as they call it. Actually, that's what it's called. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just the gunpoint, get, get in the, they all jumped in the car, told her to drive to God knows where, dumped her out of the car. Thank God that's all they did. Yeah. And like threatened her child and her, you know, and, and stole the car and left her randomly in the street somewhere in Mexico City. And that happened while I was there. And right, when you don't, when you come from places that you don't, that okay when you go back to the u.s and you have to try to explain to people that that was your cousin's experience or that those are anyone's experiences not that we don't have violence in the u.s but we don't have those particular kinds and it's very like oh connected to this other larger monstrous thing called the cartels right you don't or you know it's so difficult to explain that so that's where the the need for making uh red scare kind of came from and was I need. I felt that I needed to maybe exercise a demon or just convey this this emotion of 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 rage and and uh, just this morbid fascination, perhaps, with these processes of the United States' per- perpetual ability to uh, just get away with whatever the hell it, it wants. Yeah. In this in this fake negotiation around around drugs and cartels and and violence and and really the the prison and the military industrial complex sorry that at the same time that i'm in mexico that this, this is happening this happened to my cousin uh you're finding like 300 bodies yeah in in these pits in like places like tamalipas where people have just been disappeared you're finding i'm hearing in the radio you know all of the, the the horrible things you normally hear about a cartel, but then on top of it, the the ones who are supplying the guns to the cartels is the United States. It's yep. the time that the Fast the, the, Fiat, the Fast and the Furious uh, yep. scandal was being broken, and 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 not like I didn't know that, not like and everyone doesn't know that the cartels are and the, that these are parts of uh, process or you know the ways that the it's different sides of the same coin exactly that the u.s benefits from and Mm -hmm. uses this enemy to yes that's where all your fucking cocaine comes from everybody yeah like that they're using violence and the mass slaughtering of people guatemalan immigrants and of mexicans as a as a pretext to perpetuate a war an invisible war against a country against an invisible enemy against and to sell the weapons and to militarize because then piñonieta becomes president in this time and, yeah. and we're like Oof. militarizing an entire country yeah. and everybody's not oh, it's already a violent country and you already have a lot of guns and i'm watching the the country swing back to conservatism in this other crazy way that's that's about not only defending the country but but buying all those guns and weapons from the united states so you're buying all the guns and the weapons from the united states and you're selling all the drugs to the united states yeah so the united states is winning every side of this this coin yeah and then they get to militarize the entire country of mexico as as if mexico now can be an entire border for the united states so that nobody from Latin America or Central America can come up through Mexico because you have the narcos and the military. Great. Right. It's just, it's just this nightmare situation that one could feel in Mexico City is a little bit of a bubble, even though this did yeah. happen to my cousin in Mexico City. But Jesus Christ, like it's not to the extent that it's happening in the border and it's not the extent that it's happening in other places, but... It's, I don't know, it's just... I mean, it's a weird good. pressure cooker where, like, all these things happen and, like, there's weird, like, 
incredibly beautiful explosions at the same time. And I use the word explosions on purpose. But for example, like El Culto de la Santa Muerte, like the visual language of that is so fucking beautiful. And it sort of like harkens, but harkens back also to like um, Afro-Caribbean traditions in a lot of ways. But like all of that is coming as a reaction to this like impossible reality that like Mexicans have to live with every day. Yeah. And then like, you know, it's no fucking wonder also that like, you're interested in like gothy, weird, you know, um, <clears throat> dark stuff. So am I, you know, it's like, if you look around here, you can see a lot of like decapitated heads and stuff. And it's like, and it's, it's also like a very kind of Catholic thing, you know, mm -hmm. I, I feel like it's, it's kind of like almost like an intrinsic part of being Mexican is being able to learn to live with death in a way. Mm -hmm. I was reading this really good book, um, by uh, Carlos Lomnitz, I think is his name, called Death and the Idea of Mexico that kind of traces uh, the, the, um, the identity of the Mexican as kind of um, something that comes from learning to twist the idea of death or to think about death in a very particular way. And it is very sort of interiorized. And it comes out in these ways, you know, in a, an excess of emotion sometimes. And, and uh, yeah, and like a weird sort of dark edges yeah um, uh i mean the dark the goth tinge was always a part of my life and i'd sort of abandoned it as in my 20s but it was it was where i was in my teens yeah and it, and it came back full mexico brought it out basically yeah mexico you're 100 <laughs> yeah. percent true That's, there's so much of that in mexico it's so beautiful like the the, the mercados and the yeah, yeah. I mean, going to el chopo or el just chopo going for sure. to a goth night here they're going to um, patrick miller and everybody's all about the 80s and all about yeah. uh staying in uh, a, a genre of music forever and they are yes. cool about it and it's oh, awesome yeah. there's a diehard sort of depression mode fans serious serious, <laughs> serious fans and so I can learn a little bit from that, come back to it as a, as a, as a root and yeah, make, make work or start to make work, um, that, that resonates with, with the, like I said, the morbid obsession Yeah. It's oh, okay. This is my loop that I'm stuck in. I'm stuck in with why and how can the U S keep getting away with this and how many more Mexicans are going to die. Yeah. But also you mentioned these, these Afro-Caribbean sort of, uh, roots as well. Uh, Santeria yeah. and the the ways that that um, Caribbean religions and uh, whatever between Voodoo or Santeria also have different perspectives and takes on 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 humanity on our spiritual yeah. uh, spiritual selves. Um, I'm I'm also half Cuban, so that's always been a part of me that I could only kind of ever explore in a in a spiritual way because I don't know my father and don't have connections to Cuban family so it was just a sense of well if that's in me and I have this this sense of a world that isn't quite Catholic and isn't quite traditional then then how can I sort of blend this belief and these these signs that I've been given by friends that were practicing um of perhaps this is in my world and, uh, and a path for me to to follow that I don't practice Santeria officially in any, in any capacity, but I, I sort of follow those visual markers and signs yeah. as, a, as a spiritual person. And then in the same way, melding that experience with the, I mean, the Santa Muerte pops up in, in the work, the Red Scare, and which is a mixtape that I had made um, while in Mexico, or started to make in Mexico, and then finished uh, years later. Uh, using the imagery of Santeria and la, mixing the la, la Santa Muerte and this cult of death that we just have in general in Mexico around yeah. you know Dia de los Muertes and stuff, 
but wanting to use it for something, to say something with it. It's okay. So we have this these beliefs and this we gravitate in a in a in a morbid perhaps way towards this side. Uh, but for me, it became a clear, clearly wanting to just say use it that the visuals and the metaphor to talk about the politics of the of the place that I'm coming from and to talk about the you know everything from the I mean I'm not so interested in the cartels part of the 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 equation it's mostly my indictment is on the United States and its reactions and its motivations and its profit and its you know way that it manipulates all of this um because when the, it's it's not tens of thousands of United States citizens that are being killed because of the cartels or the war. It's 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 you know it's not them. It's not us over no, here yeah. on this side. I mean, perhaps if we're gonna if and that's one of the, the tangents that I do kind of go on and connect in the mixtape and in the video is that that border death of a young Mexican guy crossing the border is uh, is implicitly or directly connected to the deaths of young Mexican or, or Latino kids in the streets and gangs in, in the U.S. because they're the ones that are being pushed to sell those drugs. Right. So it's all connected, right? It's my youth as a as in the 90s in Chicago being scared of like, what the hell colors can I wear today? Am I going to get shot if I go somewhere? If, I, if I'm wearing, you know, Logan Square was wasn't idyllic in the 90s it was being gentrified in a way that it was invisible to me yeah but uh it was still logan square and you still were conscious that this is the city there's gangs something could happen don't go there for don't go too far in that direction don't go over there what's what's that sound who knows you know um anyways it kind of goes all full circle with being a teen and and then kind of getting out of logan square and moving up to this neighborhood and then just being weird goth yeah queerdo talking about chicago and just sort of like to dwell on this on 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 the sort of on 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 those themes there's two sort of stories that have come up recently that have been in my head kind of making me really upset but like there's that story about the mormon family in northern mexico that got uh killed because they got in the way of like cartels Hmm. i don't know if you heard about this but basically like they're like they're like related to mitt romney or something but it's just like mormons that moved to mexico to basically like extract uh, money out of Mexico and sort of use their privileges like white people in Mexico to get a lot and then to sort of like pretend that they don't have to follow like basically the rules that everybody else follows in Mexico and not get murdered and then like there's three deaths or however many there were I think it was maybe six and then suddenly it's this like international thing but like guess what there's been thousands and thousands of death, deaths caused by narcos otherwise like these mm-hmm. people just like got out of like there was a weird sort of um white privilege basically mm-hmm. about this story that really sat poorly with me the other one is um marijuana going legal in Illinois, in chicago mm-hmm. uh at the beginning of the year and the lottery to give out the licenses for the dispensaries in the city that's 30 percent latino in which a lot of the violence relating to those drugs has to do with mm-hmm. with with uh, yeah with like with mexicans and puerto ricans sort of helping uh or being part of this commercial in these commercial um systems um, and these black markets. And then suddenly there's this position of privilege when like marijuana becomes legal and all the licenses go to white people. And then the conversation is just about like, no black people got licenses and yes, that's important. But then like there's 30% of this fucking city that's Latino. And where are we in this conversation too? So there's a constant sort of like making us invisible, Mm -hmm. even in our own city where we're 30% of the population that I just find so it's disheartening. It's disheartening. A, it's, yeah, it's a part. It's a motivation for for the work that 
that I do and try to contextualize as yeah. an archive artist, whatever, programmer, screening people's work, is that issue of visibility and invisibility is, is pretty central and key to to like why we even uh, right. applied to the Propeller Fund. Right. Um, why John is making a space like Chukimarka and why I was making my I make my series. Um and you're you're hundred percent right. I I this city and having been grown or having grown up in this city ha, is a little bit of a, a torture I don't know what you'd chamber. It's yeah, like, it's yeah. Like... That that we're like you said can be thirty percent of the population of a city and still feel that in in all always we're not represented um, in the bad news or the good news, you know, right. in any, in positions of power or, uh, it's just, it's sickening. Um, and I, and to me, this problem is, has always been a reflection of the larger problem of the United States. My frustrations and my, my sense that, that we are really getting all the short ends of all the sticks, uh, in, in, in racial representations, uh, in, in the United States has to do with, with the the problem, and or is just a, a micro reflection of the massive way that the United States sees and or doesn't want to see, yeah, a huge part of its population. Yeah, we're always going to be foreigners, even if you're five generations deep in this country. You're always uh, defending your right to be here or to speak your language, or even if the land was stolen from your ancestors, uh, you're you know it. it it's a it's an, an uh, amnesia, cultural amnesia that the, the country kind of really ex excels at, yeah. at, at perpetuating. Absolutely, it's, it really conveniently doesn't ever want to consider Latinos' rightful place in this country. So until we <laughs> have some fairness or we move towards um, uh, equality, uh, I'll just have to keep making my little video arts and screenings. And... Right, and I'll keep moving the, the you know the podcast and talking about these things. But it is kind of crazy making to sort of, and I think it's it, so much of it also has to do with like structures of language. I think in the way that like race is conceived or ethnicity is conceived, also in this you know, and there's the the sort of. Um, the uh the uh the opposing words of like black or white mm -hmm. and it's like it's it's or it's not it, there's like nothing in between you know it's like even in the way that like these problems are conceptualized in culture or, or like in the sort of the grander scheme it's it's so um it's so much about opposing pairs or opposing terms what what is that um the dyads yeah like a dyad the the, the or a binary um that especially like as queer people, it's like okay, now like where where do we fit? Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's really frustrating. It's it's very it's over it's it's almost too obvious and too yeah. um, frustrating for for me. I've I've wanted to make work uh, on the binary actually, the racial binary that, and I've have a mass of of articles and things, and I'm trying to with the archive that I have make another film, but it's almost impossible to start making a film like that, that would yeah. explain this to anybody because it's just like, I'm, I, if it's hard enough to explain queer theory or queerness to people, yeah. how am I going to like, how are you going to queer race to people? This thing right. is even more in your face than, than gender, which is bizarre because gender's uh, super in everyone's face all the time too. But it's, it's daunting. And, and like you said, maddening. Um, but like I said, I'll try, I'll tell I'll, I'll get there eventually. Yeah, we have to, we have to start yeah. somewhere, right? Yeah. We, we all should be concerned with, with the way things are going and, and how we can one day, uh, 
envision a possibility that it's not going to be this way forever and that we can help <laughs> get right. towards that. Um, I, that's the half glass full in, in me for a moment. Yeah. That's the, that's why I make, to be honest, it's to keep myself. Right. From we have to crazy, do it. Keep myself from going crazy. And from, for, for the sense that I'm hopefully doing something good for someone. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody down the line is going to appreciate all the work that yeah. we're doing. Hopefully like a buddy is going to get a show from this. Someone's art is going to be exposed to the world that wasn't. And there, someone's going to see that and would never have seen it. Otherwise, uh, I might get an opportunity here or there and, uh, life won't be as miserable as it really is. Yeah. Like if is. I can make like a little Brown queer kid like that, like is really into the cure and like industrial music feel better about themselves. Like that's awesome. Like that's, that's a big win for me. Yeah. You know? And I think that it's, it's, there are, I think, well, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to be really optimistic about where things are going in Chicago. And I think that there's things that are like heartening. Um, you know, Propeller Fund obviously is, is like one of them that's really given us a lot of opportunities to, uh, to work on really cool stuff and to work on projects to sort of like help with visibility. Mm -hmm. um, I think that like DPAM is doing a lot of interesting stuff to sort of like include Latinos in there. Like uh, Chicago Artist Coalition is including a lot of people too. There's like, some things that seem to be sort of changing a little bit and I'm kind of trying to be really hopeful, but I think I'm, I'm actually very hopeful. Um, the, the hope the glass half full is overflowing now. Um, I mean, just having been at the propeller fund award ceremony this week, that was great by the way. Was, I really enjoyed that. That made me feel really nice inside. Yeah. Was, wait a second. There are a, a really a lot of, uh, Latinx people in this mix making yeah. and and, uh, and going to be producing for the next year with this with this money, and it, I joke with John that we're in some kind of Latinx renaissance. Or oh something. my god, and god yeah, knock on wood. Like hopefully I'm... it's it's cool. I mean, knowing that there's a, a podcast like this that that anyone's listening, that there's a place to be listened to, um, and that now we're part of this this cycle of showcasing and showing other people's work but also i think about um nicole maraquin's work and what yes. she, where she's which and she, the pride i mean i'm proud that she's proud that she's sharing on instagram these kids uh students high school students protesting the the museum yeah the chicago historical Society, yeah i love that and our lack of visibility in, in that institution that we're basically nothing we have no exhibition no yeah. content in that like we don't exist in that's the history of chicago right or in the history of that museum in any of its any of its content yeah, so again, as a micro-micro representation of the problem of the city as the problem of the nation, uh, those students are, are are on it. They know, they're they're fed up, and they're seeing and feeling the same things that I'm feeling, so I'm validated by them. You Absolutely, know? I'm, yeah. I'm like, yeah. oh my God. <laughs> yeah, that made me feel great, yeah. <laughs> it, so if they're aware, then we, there's there's hope. So down there. The next generation after them, or just their generation, is going to like whip this country or this city or that institution into shape. You know, there's no way around it now. Um, and I don't know if that's always been just a problem of of the the ways that the, that we've, or our movements have been historicized, that it's like we weren't a part of the civil rights movement or we there wasn't a Chicano movement or there wasn't, uh, you know, the Brown Berets or the, the Young Lords or all these other activist groups that I, I don't know what people think about race and why they think uh, what they do about Latinos and that we uh, either should be invisible or, or, or deported or we weren't also on the battle lines and haven't been on the battle lines of race since the beginning. Um, but 
but you know the immigration protests that happened back in 2005s were were uh, were a huge sort of maybe wake up call and i think that we we're living in unfortunately the backlash of that where the mobilization and the protests and the the people on the street and mass um i think in a way that was still and is the largest protest that ever happened in this country the 2005ish uh immigration protests mm-hmm. that that we're unfortunately living in the the you know, the, sw- the swing back in the pendulum of conservatism, and at the other end of that is now that we're finally getting those kids that yeah. are sick of all of this of their parents being deported, yeah, uh, to shake things up and become that next movement, right? Great, okay. And it unfortunately, it takes the bad to get to that place again later, where we're riled up and we're ready, we're, we're shaking things and and making things. And I think a lot of it also just has to do with like technology too. I mean, I, I, you know, in like, uh, I think that the internet and digital technologies, I mean, you mentioned Nicole Marroquin's project and the fact that like she's using Instagram mm-hmm. and like, I think you probably, and this is like, this will go to a question I'm going to ask you later about the internet, but I think that like the ability, for example, for me to have this project and to put it online or to use the internet as like a tool of communication of, and of like self creation, you know, in, a, in, 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 in a way where you were able to sort of, say fuck you to the general culture, I guess, and sort of feel represented and feel community outside of that by what you're creating. And mm-hmm. to find those links, I think, is a, is a huge difference. And I'm really kind of, a, you know, as sort of somebody that's going into, like, my fourth decade soon, like, I'm really kind of excited about, like, you know, the kids these days and, like, the possibilities mm-hmm. for fixing the world in the way that, like, we didn't necessarily have the tools that we were just trying to sort of figure out what the tools yeah, were. I'm guessing we're kind of like the Napster generation or the, the, yeah. the tail end of it. Yeah. In my case, uh, we, yeah, we didn't have as much, we didn't have social media. We didn't have to worry about it. Right. We, but we also didn't have it as a potential platform for, for our voice either. So there's uh, a muting that yeah. comes along with not having it or that happened. So there, they can be louder. They can, the young people can, can do and say and, and make a lot more content and, yeah. and and that's fantastic i mean that also pretend that also has a has a has a benefit in the terms of the arts i mean i wouldn't the fact that you saw my work online because i can just post it online is uh is a huge benefit and part of one of the major reasons why i'm an advocate for just video and the yeah. digital platform because yeah i can Send that link to Istanbul, and a video can be there. And, right, and it's done. I don't have yeah. to. It's flattened a lot of those uh, structures. Yeah. So if someone resonates with my work in Hungary or in in Palestine, cool. Yeah. <laughs> and see it there, and uh, just a click and a drop through an email away, amazing. And that that I I do I think I do believe and 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 praise the young people for for using the internet, and I believe in them for that, and I. And I hope that it's it's all going around and like feeding itself. The arts is I mean, not to obsess about MIA, but I mean that's another artist who used the internet and uses the internet and, Absolutely. and major major platform is gonna be always in some kind of relationship to to the to digital the digital world, to yeah. the internet, if not even as an inspiration and as a source of of her own content, as just an example of the ways that it can go full circle. You can make art that works in that digital realm, but also is inspired and responds to the digital world yeah. in a full circle. And 
I don't know if that's a closed loop and if that's the best and the only way to make work. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I have a, you know, there's a, there's a lot to be said in like sort of like cyberpunk, like literature, but also like ideas in, in, in science fiction about like the difference between like online and offline and sort of the, 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 the limits between those two things. And, and that seems to me like a really kind of a antique way or like an antiquated way of thinking about, about things. You know, it's like people, for example, like William Gibson, when they were trying to like, imagine what like a virtual reality or like working in a digital environment meant like they had their metaphors but like for us it's like it's it's, it's like staring at our phones all the time mm-hmm. like we're in that space it's just like a sort of a, a dream space or sort of an alternate space so I, I i have a hard time sometimes thinking about like the difference between those two things because i think that they're not different mm-hmm. it's just sort of like different layers of like the same kind of creation and some people are able to see it and some don't yeah it's funny it's funny you say you're questioning that because today as i was getting ready I was thinking about thought and thinking about how uh, for a lot of people and in a frustrating way for me as a, I mean, I might be more of an atheist than I even am a spiritual person or as a santero or anything, uh, but I, I, I question, I was wondering about people's relationship to, to prayer and to praying to and talking to something, talking yeah. to a higher being or to the dead or whoever they communicate with, praying to something and how... I was I was just wondering if we didn't or I don't have that impulse. I don't feel the need to pray. I mean, I might pray to something when I feel in danger and I need like to step out of my myself to hope to pray to that there's safety in somewhere or coming from somewhere. But if we're not if we, if as a person I'm not in dialogue with some entity and that I don't feel that need to pray to a god or you know anything particularly then then how, why, why and how did i become comfortable or how do how do we become comfortable with with that internal monologue and that and validate it it's, it doesn't have to just be directed towards that thing whatever it is why can't we just talk with ourselves why is that why do we think that's bad we think yeah. talking to yourself means you're crazy and it can be maddening i guess but i don't think talking to a, in a one-sided way to a, a deity is any less maddening or any less insane than talking to yourself? Why is it bad? I don't know. I just I didn't. I don't. I don't get that. Yeah, I think there's like it's there's valid. a, there's it's a yeah there's a couple of things there. There's first like this idea of like sanity as like a construct, you know, and then, then like a completely sort of like messed up construct that isn't really real. Like yeah. you know, it's the 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 the. the, the I mean, it kind of goes a little bit about like your project, like deaths in custody, but also like uh, this this uh, the structures of knowledge in which you know, somebody is either free or not and crazy or sane mm-hmm. um, are culturally specific and change over time, obviously, as like Lulu and Jardin has something to say about that. And um, there's so much about like these like language structures, these like uh, scaffolding we put around reality to be able to understand it, I feel like. So like the idea of like religion for me, and this is maybe something just based on like where I sort of locate myself, because I wouldn't say that I'm agnostic. Like the way that I think about it is like, I'm a big believer, quote unquote believer in like uh, chaos magic and, 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 and those sort of ideas about like, you know, it's not so much about like what you believe in. It's like the processes that your body takes when you're going through belief. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of taking a step back and not thinking about the result, but about the process as like the point of things. Um, so it's like, if you're praying about something, it isn't necessarily about like talking to a specific deity or something. It's about like aligning your thoughts in order to like 
create a specific result in your body or in like culture or in your brain or in uh, society or whatever it may be to manifest something it's a manifestation yeah 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 it's a it's a it's, it's using language and it's using the sort of the constructs of reality to get to a specific point based on the structure that we're in right mm-hmm. so it's a it's it's about like hacking the system to put it in like cyberpunk terms a little bit more but that's where i sort of really think that like art making and music and like trans states that you mentioned too that happen in like poetry and like the way that like language operates and also putting all that in the internet as like examples of things that people can do differently is so awesome like one of my favorite bands um going back to like industrial realm is coil and uh, some of their projects for example they think of them as like time capsules mm. or like a like a like a specific composition that'll help you kind of like escape your traditional perception of time or a space or something and how music can do that and that goes along with with this idea of like it doesn't matter what you do it matters that you do it and how you do it and how you do it and what you name it and how you put it in your head mm-hmm. yeah i guess i'm not trying to make a thesis against prayer <laughs> because yeah. i have my i have my communications with with my ancestors and the dead. And that's sort of as far as I can get. Right. I believe in the, the proximity of those spirits that are, yeah. that, are, that, are in, that are literally where we come from and still around in ways. I don't see them or feel, feel them, but I've seen the results of them. Right. For example, um, the, I had a show right after grad school at, in a residency called the overlook um, which I'm grateful for them for, for, for accepting uh, Amanda and I, a collaborator, to the residency. They didn't have a space when we applied. The first meeting that we ever had with them was when the, in their new space. They're so excited to share their new space with us. And we go to this space, a new storefront, uh, and it's across the street from the funeral parlor that I had my grand that we had in my grandfather's wake. And in that funeral parlor, five, six years late before that, I came back to that location. I had made a promise to my grandfather to become an artist. That I was going to get into grad school and become a visual artist. I couldn't have planned them having their residency or that space opening in in any of those ways. It's the creepiest, weirdest, coolest sign from my grandfather. My, you know, my ancestor, my dad, my spirit, you know, spirit kind of guide in the sense of, yeah, you're, you're, you're on the right path. You've yeah. It. You, yeah. I love that. Yeah. To be doing. That's awesome. And so then that derails our, my residency and project plans. And now the work has to just be about him and that. And, and so then Amanda, my fr- uh, friend collaborator, Amanda Cervantes is also working on cyclical loops of chasing her ancestors and nice. going to her grandparents, great or grandmother, great grandmother's grave in Mexico. And we're just both, doing these loop-de-loops around the dead and and that's what the prod you know, our work became in that residency so totes totes the the dead are are are, are amongst walking amongst yeah us. they're still here they're still here they're pushing and pulling the strings probably really um and i have respect for them uh but anyways it's not i don't know what's beyond that though that's all kind of like where my, yeah. my vision and my periphery kind of just stops and i'm okay with it i'm cool with that's enough. Like that's yeah. mad powerful. Wow. Right, okay. and that's fucking beautiful. Like I don't need to like add all these other explanations. Like yeah. the fact that all this stuff happened yeah. is already like amazing enough. Like we don't need to like yeah. yeah. It's, like it's great if you want to add more, but like sure. that's already incredible. Yeah. And that feels so good as an artist when you sort of like run into those um coincidences, you know? It's like it's like oh shit, the work kind of comes to you sometimes. It's like almost like 
it just presents itself. Well, I also don't see it as coincidence, though. No. Either. I feel it's no other coincidence that I'm two blocks a block away from the apartment that my mom and I were living on while she was on Section 8 in this neighborhood when I was in high school. Like, what? How the heck did I end up living back in this neighborhood now in an apartment building that's two blocks away from where I was spending, you know, my angsty... Yeah. gothy teenage years talking about this shit it's like wow okay i'm probably still in that space in yeah in, we in leave a, traces in a parallel dimension like we're i'm still that kid he's listening to this we're going around in circles and i was meant to be right here right now and uh, yeah, I, I like it <laughs> it's cool <laughs> yeah i love that stuff so We've been talking for a bit. I want to just sort of wrap it up, but I want to end it up with a couple of questions that I like to ask people at the end of the thing. So like the first kind of easy segue for that is like, what is some advice that you wish you would have gotten when you were much younger hmm. or advice that you would give yourself when you were much younger? Advice that I would give myself when I was, oh man. I think it's just to not give up, you know? I mean, maybe I'd be a Pulitzer Prize winning author now had I just had more conviction and and been a little braver and had a little bit more discipline. So just be a little bit more disciplined and try a little harder and, and say fuck you to more things and people that are giving you those negative, you know, those negative voices either in yourself or externally and to just, uh, to do the work, you know? Um, yeah, try harder and to, to fight against those forces and believe in yourself. Yeah, that's a good one. Believe in yourself and try harder. Um, how do you feel about the internet? It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Yeah, that's a good answer. That's it's, yeah. It's uh, I mean, it's where I found love. In yeah. Every single relationship that I've ever had, with uh, I mean, maybe excluding like a couple of them. I'm no, I'm like I think ninety nine percent of the relationships I've had were from the internet in some way. There's between apps and what back then were websites we had to go on to to find other people. Yeah, I mean, we hard same here, yeah. Uh, I don't like bars, uh, although I was stuck in them for a long time doing music journalism. <laughs> I don't think they're noisy and hard to... I have a soft-spoken voice. I don't... My voice doesn't carry. It's difficult. I get literally... I lose my voice in bars. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I can't find dudes there. So I can't find love ever if you don't go to gay bars. That's a really narrowing and shitty outlook for life then. So thank God for the internet and for other nerds and weirdos that are at home uh, looking for love or other things and find it. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. Same here. I love the internet. And then like almost everything good that's ever happened to me has kind of come because of the internet. Like I don't think any of the career paths I would have yeah, had, none of them. have had, had would have been possible without the internet. I mean, even when I was, just starting to feel excited about uh, publishing and zine, online zines and making, you know, uh, sending my poetry or fiction to places. It was, yeah, it's like these, who is this Chicana writer that's got a zine in California that's, that's commenting on my blog and saying, and encouraging me, what, what, what? That's not possible in the print, right. physical world. It's, it's as valid and as real and important a world, the internet, than, than probably most, I mean, our generations and the generations after, you know, are aware of that. We're we. It's intrinsic. Too we can't, much. Yeah. Perhaps we, maybe we're plugged in too much. But I don't know. I try not to. I work with kids actually, so 
I joke about them being addicted to their phones, but, uh, I mean, I was not, a, I didn't have a phone but that back then, but I was addicted to, you know, the internet too already at a young age. And yeah. if I hadn't developed that, those skills in typing and emailing and mess, instant messaging people and getting over my social anxieties and, and insecurities in at least the avatar format of the internet, then... <laughs> then I probably never would have gotten anything in life, really. Yeah, that's that's a that's a really weird thing, too, because I feel like when we were coming up, our, the internet was a much more permeable thing than it seems now. Mm-hmm. Like, it seems, you know, like for, like, my little niece, like, when she encounters the internet, like, it's something really funny is that, like, I try sometimes to, like, FaceTime with her, and sometimes she doesn't get that it's a two-way communication because also, like, she just gets a lot of videos sent to her mm-hmm. and she's two mm-hmm. so it's like really difficult for her sometimes to realize when there's when the, the person on the screen is talking back or just talking mm-hmm. so it's i'm really in, it, it, it and some like kids don't know how to google things mm-hmm. you know there's like a real sort of like yeah i don't know i feel like yeah we were like the sort of the sweet spot where like yeah maybe you're right i mean i don't know what i work with different age ranges so i work with high school students and i also work with college age kids yeah you know, adjunct and I work at a library. So the, the younger kids, I don't know where they're, I'm not asking them to send me emails or they're not asking, being asked to send emails on the daily by anyone because they're in high school or I don't know what age they are. Some of them might be in middle school. Um, so I don't know what their, where their actual skills level is with the college kids. I can see very, uh, or students, I can see very clearly, oh, okay. Yeah, you don't use Google Drive, so you don't know about this Google Drive function. But right. if I say, you know, Google Drive, you got you understood at least what I was talking about. Yeah. You know that it's in Google, and, it, and you yeah. just don't know where to find it. And, oh, click that button. Once I showed you where to click that button, it's done from there. You got it. Okay, drag and drop files. And here it's folders, done. It's understand. It's, you understand it. Um, I don't know if that's... Uh, if that's even the effects later of living in the Snapchat world, or and the younger ones are just to instant feedback loop of of content oh, I, don't, I don't know but i think it's gonna be really tell. interesting to see yeah time will tell what these kids turn out like um i mean maybe they'll invent something really cool that will save the planet and yeah stop let's us do it i'm excited about these kids stop us all from you know killing each other killing each other and also destroying the planet yeah <laughs> and that's the one that that I, you know, like, okay, the war between the war and the environment, we're just, like, constantly... Which one's going to get us first, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's try to stop them both. <laughs> so, Luis, what are you working on now? Um, well, sin sin previa, I guess. I guess I answered that question, right? No, not necessarily. What else I, are you working on? I, I want to finish, well, I have to finish a piece uh, with Kaisa Sali about um, sort of a work that he'd been working on for the past couple of years and that will be showing at the sculptural center sculpture center i keep saying sculptural center, <laughs> at the sculpture center in new york yeah uh nice. so turning a turning a very weird practice somewhere between appropriation and painting and drawing and photography and trying to turn all that into a, a video piece for this show a uh, group show and so I have to do that immediately. I'm also working on, for myself, a piece about uh, sort of querying the landscape uh, and sort of where 
where I, th- well, I don't want to give too much away about it because I don't know which direction it's taking, but I'm looking at codices. I'm looking at a particular archaeological site uh, and I'm looking at, at how indigenous and native uh, perspectives have and can inform from history, from the historical sense and from the now, uh, the ways that we look at uh, the United States in this oh. very particular place. So hopefully I can turn all of these things and ideas into a video art piece that will be done one day. Nice. And where can people find you? Online. I am uh, joseluisbenavides.com and uh, um, Instagram and stuff. Instagram is Luigi, uh, L-U-3-G-E and SoundCloud. (laughs) Uh, SoundCloud, what's my SoundCloud? I think my SoundCloud is Louis Logan, L U W I L O G A N. Uh, otherwise, yeah, that's enough. at the library. At the library, at right <laughs> college, teaching photography. Nice. Uh, at art stuff, at Chukimarca. At Chukimarca, at, at uh, Film Front. At Film Front, yeah, all the haunts. Nice. Well, Luis, Jose Luis, thank you so much for coming. That was a great conversation. Well, thanks for having me. All right, thanks, everybody. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was Jose Luis Benavides. Find him on social media. Find him on his website. This podcast was recorded, produced, and edited by me, Ivan Lozano, in Chicago, Illinois. Follow me on Instagram, Ivan Lozano Studio, one word. Check out my website, ivanlozano.net. Thank you also to the Propeller Fund for the support. And thank you to Natalie Murillo, a.k.a. La Spacer, for the theme music. You can follow her on Instagram, SoundCloud, MixCloud, Facebook, and lastspacer.com. That's L-A-spacer.com. Thanks again for listening, everyone.